You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. This episode is really important, but maybe a lot. So I hope to make this somewhat cohesive. We're going to be exploring a powerful case study that is full of important principles. So before we talk with my friend Leah about her father's ICU journey, let's clear the air on a few foundational topics. We know that prolonged deep sedation and immobility have a lot of detrimental repercussions. For this episode, Let's talk about how our cultural sedation practices increase the risks of ICU-acquired weakness and diaphragm dysfunction, and how that leads to failed extubations, re-intubations, prolonged time on the ventilator, readmission to the ICU, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and other hospital-acquired infections. When we see in studies that a significant risk factor for failed extubation and re-intubation is ICU acquired weakness and diaphragm dysfunction, we need to be looking at how that comes to be. Disuse of muscles is certainly a factor. We have seen in studies that even bed rest, which is different than immobility, and healthy young adults for a week without critical illness still lost 1.4 kilograms of lean muscle and had a 5% increase in insulin resistance. Now in the ICU setting, one week of immobility can lead to a 12 to 40% loss of skeletal muscle. We all know what that looks like when a patient's physical capacity rapidly declines on the ventilator. Disuse atrophy is tough. Recovery happens slowly at about a 6% per week rate. It takes longer to recover from disuse atrophy than from muscle trauma. So ICU-acquired weakness can be caused by unavoidable conditions such as septic shock, but can also be caused by or exacerbated by factors that are often avoidable, such as malnutrition, sedation use, vasopressor use, hyperglycemia, and prolonged time on the ventilator. Remember that last episode, we talked about propofol's role in insulin resistance and hyperglycemia, neuromuscular disruption, and even vasopressor use, all huge risk factors for ICU-acquired weakness. One study suggested that ICU-acquired weakness is so profound in COVID-19 patients that perhaps propofol is not appropriate to use due to its impact on the muscles and diaphragm. In one study on rats, one group was given propofol with mechanical ventilation and the other group was given propofol while spontaneously breathing. Now, in my mind, I have understood that the disuse of the diaphragm due to the work of the ventilator was a main cause of diaphragm dysfunction in this kind of scenario that lacks all the other factors of critical illness, right? Yet, surprisingly, both concluded with about the same level of diaphragm dysfunction, which makes a suspicious case for propofol's independent adverse effect on the diaphragm. 
right? Blew my mind as well. And of note on a similar study done evaluating midazolam's impact on the diaphragm, it was shown to have a possibly even worse impact on the diaphragm. So this reaffirms my experiences in the awake and walking ICU in which time on the ventilator is drastically reduced and failed extubations are almost non-existent. Propofol is an extreme exception in their practice and midazolam or Versed is not even in their vocabulary. Most patients are moved shortly after intubation and throughout their entire time on the ventilator. So diaphragm dysfunction is greatly prevented. We do not talk about diaphragms enough in our teams when we are immobilizing patients or trying to do breathing trials. Diaphragm dysfunction is present in about 80% of patients with ICU-acquired weakness. Diaphragm dysfunction is most common when there is extremity weakness. So if your patient can't give you a strong high five or throw their legs out of the bed, you may want to cross your fingers if you're going to do a breathing trial or dare to extubate them. When we automatically start deep sedation on every patient on a ventilator, we are likely giving agents that disrupt the diaphragm, cause hyperglycemia, disrupt the connection from the brain to the muscles, require supportive vasopressors that will all contribute to muscular atrophy and even neuropathy on top of absolute disuse and critical illness. This should help make sense when we see that sedation and immobility increase the chances of prolonged time on the ventilator. When we fry the diaphragm, then there is no chance of independently breathing once the acute process in the lungs is resolved. The longer a patient is on the ventilator and the less they move, the less likely they are to be able to mobilize their secretions, their greater risk of subglottic aspirations, and the development of ventilator-associated pneumonia. This is why the awake and walking ICU went years without a ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the rare cases they had are with exceptional patients that were immobilized. They've had high-acuity COVID ICU since the very beginning and have not had any ventilator-associated pneumonias. So the weaker they are and the longer they are in the hospital, the more likely they are to end up back in the ICU for so many things, such as falls, aspiration, or other hospital-acquired infections. I invite you to do your own research on this. I always include citations for information shared on the blog. It's basically my literature review and you are welcome to it. So now that we're all on the same page about how all of this is connected, let's dive into a sobering story told by an ICU survivor's daughter, Leah. To preface, I was clearly not present for this hospitalization, so there will be some assumptions or speculations. Yet we will see how the decision to automatically sedate patients, sign them up for months of complications and perhaps a lifetime of consequential suffering. Leah, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your journey or your dad's journey. I guess it's your whole family's journey through the ICU. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all started with your dad? Sure. So my dad had back surgery. So he had his C6 and C7 vertebrae, hopefully I'm saying this correctly, were kind of compressed together. And he went to like a neurosurgeon and said that if he didn't have the surgery, he'd basically be paralyzed within some amount of time. 
which he had some hard time walking and everything. Ill health, like kind of during, you know, historically with anti-anxiety, bipolar disorder. And, and he had a knee replacement like two years ago too. So he hasn't been the healthiest person, but still not, not the most, un, you know, mm-hmm. unhealthiest person. And how uh, old is he? 70. He's 70 now. And what was he doing at home? What was his functional status before this? Basically he's retired. He used to work in kind of the hockey industry and he, you know, was able to like be at a computer and stuff, walk a little bit with a walker or with crutches sometimes, but he did try to walk without that. He tried to like exercise on, on the bike and he always like, you know, is really great with his grandkids reading to them. So really, you know, you know, functioning to the best of his ability that his physical ability would let him. And the hope was with this surgery that his mobility would improve, right? Yes. Yep. That he'd be able to walk more and participate more. He left the hospital after his surgery and he returned to the ER. Yep. He returned to the ER. He had a ton of pain. He was discharged on a Friday, the next day, Saturday at midnight, he had a ton of, ton of pain that he just couldn't the, he had hydrocodone and some other pain meds and they just weren't cutting it. So my mom took him to the ER at the hospital. He had the surgery and they gave him morphine and he coded. So his heart and lungs stopped. So they brought him back and then immediately was intubated. And immediately upon intubation, they had him on continuous sedation, correct? Correct. Yep. On continuous sedation. Were you told uh, whether or not he was waking up, responding to anyone before that sedation was started? Nope. Wasn't told anything kind of what his, his mental status was or, or functionality was. But they did an um, MRI. Yep. They did an MRI. His, his brain was completely, you know, not injured at all. So he was still, you know, everything looked good from that aspect. And yet they kept him sedated. Yes. They ke- so, yep, kept him sedated. Sounds like he was over sedated from the morphine, stopped breathing. So his heart stopped and they were able to resuscitate him, had him intubated during that resuscitation. I personally am not sure why he was on continuous sedation. I prefer to know what my patient's neurostatus is doing following an arrest. The MRI showed no brain damage, right? So my suspicion is that he was probably okay. And yet he remained intubated because he was sedated and sedated because he was intubated is what yes. it sounds like. Yeah. That definitely like is key that what I saw. So he was intubated. He arrested on May 16th and was intubated then. And two days later, they tried to extubate him. Yes. And then what happened? He was extubated and then he was doing okay. He was on a high flow nasal cannula. And he, he does have a history of sleep apnea too, but he is claustrophobic. So he hates having a mask on. So my brother was there and he was extremely combative, trying to kick my brother, wanted to, to leave the hospital, really combative with the nurses. So they ended up having to intubate him again and sedate him in order to keep him calm. So he was, it sounds like he had signs of delirium. Yep. Um, you said he, had bi- he has bipolar disorder. Yes. So probably at higher risk of having delirium and being very traumatized and coping very poorly with delirium. I would suspect that's why he was combative. Yes. Oh yeah. And so he, on, so the 16th, he arrested the 18th, he's extubated. 
he was combative. And so he was reintubated and resedated. On the 20th, then what happened? So they ended up extubating him again. And then he basically, he lasted a little bit longer being extubated on a high flow nasal cannula. But I remember going in there to visit him and he would just was cranky and, and told me to go away, which isn't not, you know, not really his personality either. He had to have restraints on. And then during that night, after I'd seen him in the evening, that night he had to be reintubated because he was being too, too competitive again and agitated. And he was on high flow nasal cannula. Did they express concerns about his oxygenation? Yeah, there was some concerns about his oxygenation just because he was on a high flow, but, but that didn't seem like, I mean, his stats were still like a little rocky when he was on the high flow nasal cannula, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't something that I think it was like 80%, but his heart rate kept, I don't know, going up and down just because he was agitated too. His heart rate would, would go up. So he was Um, was receiving 80% from the nasal cannula. Correct. Yep. Okay. And so they were concerned because he was so agitated and difficult to manage and maybe had a little bit of a tenuous oxygenation, right? I'm not totally clear. You said that later he got Lasix and they pulled a lot of fluid off. I'm not sure why he had so much fluid on him. My thought is we can also diurese people when they're on high flow. Uh, Again, I wasn't there. So it's hard for me to make these yeah. conclusions. I'm just yeah. concerned yeah. that he was agitated probably because he was delirious. He told you to go okay. away. He didn't, wasn't himself. He was probably delirious, reintubated, resedated yep. because he was delirious. That's, that's concerning. <laughs> but again, I wasn't there. So I have to, you have to give some leniency because we don't know exactly what all the circumstances yeah. were, but so from the, the 14th through the 20th, he was basically sedated, intubated, extubated twice, reintubated on the 20th by the 25th. So we're now into nine days on the ventilator with some brief breaks for high flow. He's never moved, right? He's never worked in physical therapy, never sat up, has been deeply sedated, not mobilizing his secretions, getting weaker and weaker. And lo and behold, he develops a ventilator associated pneumonia. Yes. Yep. What kind of infection was that? It was in his left lower lobe and it was pretty bad. They were getting a ton of um, secretions and whatnot from, from the ventilator and having to suction a lot. Do you know what kind uh, of bug it was? No idea. Okay. Uh, I want to say it was, oh my goodness. MRSA? It wasn't MRSA. It was, it was another hospital like acquired infection. I don't know if there was a word my brother used for it and I cannot remember what it was, but but maybe it was a type of MRSA thinking back to it. So he has his ventilator associated pneumonia. He's treated for it. He's been diuresed. They're hoping he's doing better because he's on 40% PIPA five. Right. And then they extubate him again. Correct. Yep. Well, so that last, last time, so he was doing good. He was slowly getting off the sedation a little bit because he was doing better and he ended up coughing up his ET tube, which, you know, I don't think he didn't pull it out. They were worried that he was going to try mm-hmm. to pull it out. Cause he had been like that, you know, even, that's why he had the restraints basically, basically this entire time too, he had restraints on mm-hmm. and he coughed it up. And since he was on the cusp of being able to be extubated, they kept him 
extubated. So he was on the high flow nasal cannula at that point, but really he was okay at the beginning. But when I saw him that next day, he was struggling. And I've never seen anyone cough up um, the endotracheal tube. Yeah. I've seen it like slightly dislodged, but never seen it coughed up. I've seen maybe the tubing become slightly disconnected from the ET tube, but I've never seen someone cough it up. So I know that's a big concern when people think that people have to be sedated so they don't cough up their tubes. I would suspect that maybe it wasn't adequately secured. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I've seen lots of people cough on the ET tube. I mean, it happens when you have a raging pneumonia, you have lots of secretions and yeah. you're awake on the ventilator. We think coughing is pretty good. We think that's good to clear out secretions. So ultimately it's extremely rare to cough up your ET tube. And it's unfortunate that it did, but nonetheless, he was on a PIPA 5, 40%. So he should have been extubated by that point. Right. Yes. So third try without the endotracheal tube. And you said he was struggling. What did that look like? He was just like very agitated, sleeping kind of he, he had to be, you know, when I saw him, when he was intubated, he, he was pretty okay. There was a moment, a few hours where he didn't have to have restraints on. We, he was, you know, seemed more in his mind, seemed more relaxed. But then when I saw him, when he was on the high flow nasal cannula, he had to have the little puffs on his wrist because he kept trying to rub off the, the nasal cannula and had to be restrained again and just like super agitated. The nurse kept asking him questions like, who is the president? Who, you know, can mm-hmm. fish uh, swim in the sea? Like very simple questions yeah. just to see how he was. And he just couldn't really stay awake. Like, you know, kept shaking his head like he didn't know. So that was peculiar too. And I think they did some blood gases on him too. And his, his CO2 was high. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't like, and that's been, I mean, throughout this journey, like, you know, he hasn't, we realized, you know, through this last week that he's not the best about getting, you know, the CO2 off. And this is a really good case study of that because he went from May 16th being intubated to now June 7th being totally immobilized, mostly on the ventilator and sedated. And we have to look at what that does to the diaphragm. When we don't use the diaphragm to breathe or to sit up or to walk, the diaphragm atrophies and can become paralyzed. So I would suspect that your dad's diaphragm was, and probably still is dysfunctional. Yeah. So though his lungs were fine, fine enough to have low oxygen setting, low peep setting, his diaphragm still couldn't drop and expand the lungs enough to have adequate ventilation. And so he was likely taking more shallow breaths. He was delirious. He's probably a little over sedated still. Or he was becoming more lethargic because his CO2 was rising because he was not able to breathe that off because of dysfunctional diaphragm. And so all this plays into this big picture of these statistics that we have showing that patients that are deeply sedated and immobilized for extended periods of time, like your dad, are at higher risk of being re-intubated. Even once the lungs are better, if the diaphragm can't work, you can't breathe. You said once that when he was extubated, he was saying, I can't breathe. Yep. Yep. He was, yeah. He told my mom that. And I remember like it was that third time he was extubated and like, he wanted my mom to like tap on his chest or like push down on his chest in order to like breathe better. Like he just obviously like he felt like, you know, something caught like in his chest tightening. And the only thing I, I mean, I've never experienced that, but I would liken it 
to having someone laying on your upper abdomen or on your chest and you get panicked and you start getting agitated and you say, cause you can't drop your diaphragm. You can't breathe in these little shallow breaths. No one is comfortable yeah. with that. Yeah. So it makes sense that he'd be agitated, panicked and say, I can't breathe and wanting someone to support his respiratory muscles. That's interesting. He wanted your mom to push on his lungs because he knew he yeah. needed to expel and inhale deeper. Like that is a natural survival instinct that he still had, even in his delirium. And yet did anyone mention the diaphragm to you? No one mentioned the diaphragm at all. And like, I, I pushed them to like, maybe do more PT or like, I asked them about the diaphragm and stuff. Cause I know too, from running and I, I ran marathons, like how the diaphragm and everything works to, for your breasts and stuff. And to keep, you know, your heart rate steady and no one knew, like no one even mentioned it. No one could really answer my questions when I asked about that. So they had to reintubate him because he wasn't ventilating adequately. And so he was reintubated shortly after, right? Back on the seventh. Yep. Yep. Re reintubated. He, my sister was there at the time and he was just trying to get up out of bed saying he wanted to go home, telling people to help him. Um, and, and it, it was kind of a mess. And then, you know, my sister called my mom. My mom said, just, you know, if he had to be reintubated to, to get calm. So he was resedated upon intubation. Yes. So yep. now we're going from May 16th down to June 16th of being almost on continuous sedation the whole time. So that's almost a month of being intubated and sedated and immobilized. Yes. Yep. He's been extubated three times, reintubated three times. And you reached out to me, I think 10 days after he had been intubated, right? Yes. And that's, I think when you started advocating for physical therapy to work with him and to keep moving. And my goal was for him to avoid a tracheostomy because this is all related to weakness. Yep. And what was the response when you would request physical therapy and that the team get him moving to avoid a tracheostomy? basically that they didn't have enough resources to get him up and moving and they just didn't have the time to, to get him going. Cause I was asking like, can we just get him up and, you know, do, dangling his feet at the end of the bed or, or maybe just sitting in a chair and they just said they didn't have resources and there wasn't enough like physical therapists or occupational therapists to, you know, come that often for that entire, you know, floor of patients. There's only like in PT would only come like every other day too. So like, I couldn't even get them there every day. So I think it was normal that you would request that someone on a ventilator work with physical therapy. Were they confused by that at all? They seemed confused about it. They were just like, no, like that's not how it works or didn't, didn't like make sense to them while I was asking about it. Every hospital, every unit has their own culture. And so it sounds like this might be a team that, doesn't usually work with patients until they're extubated. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, extubate her with the trach and, you know, then they go to LTAC and. I'm talking about don't have time, right? Yeah. How much time was consumed? How much work was it to have your dad deeply sedated and intubated for maybe almost a month longer than he should have been? I mean, he, most patients that they're over sedated, and they arrest, we catch them right away. 
maybe they're intubated for that moment, but we let them wake up. I mean, the point was that they were over sedated. So why would we keep yeah. sedating them <laughs> and yeah. keep taking yeah. away the respiratory drive that caused them to rest in the first place? So theoretically, if he had been allowed to wake up right after his arrest and he didn't have brain damage, and then we don't give them delirium, that would have spared potentially another three, four weeks of being intubated and sedated. Yeah. Or even at some point, if someone had just said, let's keep his muscles strong, that would have spared so much time, effort, work. So when we say we don't have time to mobilize patients, I feel like, how do we, how can we afford not to? Yeah. Yeah. Everything has been deeply impacted by those first choices upon your dad's admittance to the ER and to the ICU, everything impacted where he ended up. So of course he gets a tracheostomy on um, June 15th, finally turn off the Presidex on June 16th and move him to the step down. Um, And it sounds like he had just had a terrible time. They placed the pig tube. It got dislodged. He had an ileus, which your chances of having ileus when you're deeply sedated, immobilized, probably on a fentanyl drip, you know, narcotics. Yeah. Your chances of having ileus greatly increase. And I keep hearing about these COVID patients and all these patients having ileuses. Um, we probably cause it, if not greatly contribute yeah. to it. And so your poor dad has been vomiting, having a pig tube dislodged, and then he gets shipped off to LTAC. Yep. Yep. They, they, he, he kind of had like some transition where he was in the step down, had to go back to the MICU because of the peg tube getting dislodged. So had to go into emergency surgery at like 3am for that. Then, you know, got, you know, medically stable in the MICU and then went back to the step down. And then once he was after like 24 hours of being stable, even maybe it was even less than that, maybe 12 hours. They yep said, you know, you're ready for LTAC. And my mom, my mom was awesome. She was an advocate for him. Like he's not ready, like keep him just another day. And they basically told us we didn't have a choice. Like he had to go to LTAC. They were <laughs> no one wants an LTAC patient. They're just tired of the chronic care, the, all the recovery stuff that they're not interested in an ICU. He was treated for antibiotics for the pig to dislodgement. And so we could have potentially had an infection, another hospital acquired infection. So that's two hospital acquired infections, which are extremely hosp- expensive for hospitals again, weeks longer because of all of these complications. When I, right now I'm working through a lot of the financial pictures of things. And when we say we don't have enough money to hire more physical therapists or money to adequately staff or educate the teams, we are costing the hospital so much money and the patients so much money by allowing this whole scenario to unfold where we cause these all complications and we're just patching up and trying to fix everything that we've caused. And then he goes to LTAC. And most of us from the ICU, we don't really know what LTACs are like. So what has your dad's journey in the LTAC been since then? So he he went there and first he couldn't get a private room. He had to be in another room with someone, which I understand that does happen. But knowing my dad with his, you know, anxiety, depression, that, that sort of thing, that he'd just be extremely uncomfortable there. So he was there for probably 12 hours and my mom pushed for him to get a private room. So the next day he was able to get into a private room and then the staff there had been pretty good, but I mean, it's a high nurse to patient ratio. Each nurse has five patients. Most of those patients are in ventilators. So I can't like imagine having to take care of that, that many patients that are pretty, pretty ill. Be conditioned, completely yes, yes. helpless and dependent on nursing care. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, 
I mean, it's been good that they, you know, physical therapists, occupational therapists, they come more often. So that's good. But he still had like episodes of vomiting just from the, the peg tube. And just like, you know, they first thought he had a bowel obstruction from the vomiting, but turned out that, you know, they did a, a CT scan, his stomach, everything was completely fine. So then they ruled it out that maybe he just wasn't tolerating the, what they were giving him through the peg tube. And I'm like, this is, this is crazy. So then I'm wondering what ingredients are in, you know, what he was getting through his peg tube. Cause he, he is a pretty sensitive and he has a wheat allergy. Mm-hmm. I always thought he had celiac disease just cause I'm gluten intolerant. And I thought maybe like, you know, having his wheat allergy, he might have that too. So I'm wondering if there's gluten in, you know, right. or, or wheat in that, you know, what they were giving him. So two feeds are, are rough. I mean, they're, they're not what our bodies are used to. So it's a whole nother shock to the body to have to have two feeds for, now weeks where he may have been able to just walk away and start eating shortly after his cardiac arrest or his respiratory arrest rather. And they have been trying to put him on a trach mask, right? Trying to get him stronger so that he can breathe on his own. And what keeps happening? He keeps his CO2 keeps rising and then he gets kind of agitated and, you know, kind of combative and stuff. He was like telling my brother that he, you know, wasn't proud of him even though you know that's not my dad my dad's you know you know he loves his kids and uh, so it was it was weird about it just the way he was acting so then finally my mom told him like he needs to be you know back on the ventilator because he's not his co2 is too high so got put back on the ventilator for the night and stuff so they've been kind of doing a more weaning process for him with the trach mask but thank goodness earlier this week he passed the swallow test so he's able to actually consume foods yesterday and today. Oh, that's so, exciting. Yeah. So today being July 7th to so July 6th. So he has gone since May 16th. He has not been able to eat food himself. He has not been able to walk. He's not been able to really communicate. He had a hard time with a speaking valve. He, I mean, he hasn't been allowed to breathe on his own since May 16th. And here we are June 6th and he is still in LTAC and not close to being able to go home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is he able to be off the ventilator during the day then? Yes. He's able to be off the ventilator during the day. And then they do put him back on the ventilator at night. So for the past like two, three nights. Good. But it's such a process. And that's a process that we do not see in the ICU. We just trick pig him, send him off the LTAC. And now he's on antibiotics for MRSA pneumonia. Yep. Well, yep. He has a little bit of pneumonia and then he has MRSA by his hopefully I'm saying this right sputum so he he got MRSA you know from the hospital and stuff and that I think too they were thinking contributed to his kind of being you know agitation and stuff so a little bit of sepsis uh, maybe yeah yeah and so we've had two probably three hospital acquired infections yep yep and I would be bold enough to link it right back to the decision to deeply sedate him right after he's intubated following his code. Instead of letting him wake up after intubation and seeing what his neurostatus was, the choice was made out of habit to deeply sedate him because he's on a ventilator, which led him to have delirium and to fail extubation the days following that, which led him to be reintubated, which made him weaker and to fail his fault sequential extubations. 
So when we talk about deep sedation causing patients to be reintubated, readmitted to the ICU, your dad was readmitted to the ICU, higher risk of hospital acquired infections. He's had probably three tracheostomy, delirium. He'll probably have post-ICU PTSD from this. He probably oh, yes. has post-ICU dementia. And after a month of being sedated, it affects the brain. He has been moved to LTAC and he's having weeks now of struggles in LTAC. His journey was not one because he was discharged from the ICU. What has this done to your family? It's just been so hard, like, you know, trying to go visit him. Of course, there's still like COVID restrictions. So only one at a time are able to be in the room. Now in LTAC, two at a time are. So, I mean... And that's been hard trying to juggle, like, you know, we all work and have kids and trying to go and see him to make sure that he's okay. And just, we've had, we had like some close calls thinking if he wasn't going to make it. And I mean, that that's really rough. We're a very close knit family. So I think there was one time when he was in the MICU within like probably the first, I think it was a week and a half, his oxygen levels dropped. And they just had to turn up the oxygen on the ventilator. But the doctor called my mom and asking if, you know, if he's a, DNR and my mom thought, okay, something's majorly wrong. So my mom called us all, you know, they wasn't doing well. So all of us, you know, drop work, find someone to watch the kids and go to the hospital. So it turned out that he, you know, was okay. They just need to turn up the oxygen a little bit. Maybe um, because he's developing pneumonia from being on the ventilator because of being immobilized on the ventilator. Yep. And that's exactly the timing right after is when he got the yeah pneumonia and stuff and got put in the antibiotics. And he started with healthy lungs. Yeah. It's yeah. all just because of that decision to sedate. And what would you have the ICU community understand about any and all of this whole process from your dad's perspective to your perspective? I would just have them like, you know, humanize each, you know, patient and seeing them for what they could be capable of, and maybe, you know, thinking the best and, you know, expecting the worst, I guess, to have them, have them be more mobile at the beginning and, and understanding, or maybe even have like psych come to help them understand like what's going on. Cause no one, you know, I'm sure no one explained to my dad, like, okay, this is what happened. You coded, you're in the ICU and giving him a lowdown of, you know, where he was at. So just kind of humanizing each patient and instead of having these step-by-step processes for, for what to do if something happens. Yeah. And I, I deeply respect you for advocating, for pushing, for being insistent to on things that the team wasn't familiar or comfortable with. I think that takes a lot of courage from families to try to help teams change and do the best thing for patients. And I am sorry that you weren't listened to. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I tried to talk and understand, you know, medical terminology and stuff so that hopefully they'd take me, take me seriously and understand things, but definitely, you know, wasn't, it it was an okay experience. I mean, not the best experience, but I mean, the interaction between them was okay with the, the doctors, but it wasn't like I was really heard. Yeah. And I am sure you had a good team that was doing the best to the knowledge that they have. But I hope that this scenario that your dad has endured does not happen to other people. I really suspect a lot of this could have been prevented by changing our sedation and mobility practices. And I don't say that to everyone as far as families or survivors, but you hunted me down. (laughs) 
yeah. How did you find I, me? I, go to, I, I found you. I, I, I was lost. Like it was such a difficult time with my family. I had no knowledge of ICU and what was going on. So I tried to, you know, find a podcast that, you know, I could listen to while I work. So I could try to understand things better. So I found your, your podcast walking home from the ICU and started listening and realized some of the things that you were talking about, we were experiencing as, you know, family and, you know, my dad's a patient. So I reached out to you on Instagram just to get your insights. I felt lost and I felt like the doctors weren't explaining things. So I'm like, I need someone to help, you know, me understand like what's going on here. Yeah. And these discussions have helped, have helped me appreciate how vulnerable patients and even families are in these situations. You are at the mercy of the culture of the ICU that you're at and whether or not they are open to more information or the latest research or trying something different really depends on their own humility and and perspective. So that's, that's really difficult. Thank you for sharing this with us. I know this is a hard time for your family, even currently. Again, I would repeat to the ICU community, just because someone's been transferred out of the ICU does not mean that they're out of the woods and patients like your dad are still at risk of being readmitted to the ICU. And we have to see that the moment someone wheels into our our doors in the ICU, what we want to happen in the following weeks. And that is determined by the choices we make upon admission and upon intubation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and keeping them, keeping them walking. (laughs) I've just, as you know, like you're saying, just keep them going to, to understand, you know, kind of what's going on. The whole body matters. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Leah, thank you so much. Keep us posted. We want to know how your dad's doing in a couple of weeks and a couple of months. We want to keep learning from him and let us know how we can support you however we can. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on and being able to tell a story. I've, you know, become very passionate seeing things going. I definitely want to get, you know, his story out. So hopefully no one else has to go through what he went through. Well, I'll keep you in my, my quiver. (laughs) We need your voice and I appreciate you offering it. Thank you. Thank you. So in conclusion, it is likely that if this ICU team had chosen to avoid sedation and perform a true neuro exam, Leah's father may have been able to be promptly extubated. Perhaps he would have needed another day for diuresis after the code, yet it seems appropriate to suspect that had he been able to wake up promptly, with at least a true sedation vacation, he would have been spared weeks of mechanical ventilation, ICU delirium with probable ICU, post-ICU dementia and PTSD, three re-intubations, two possibly three hospital-acquired infections, an ICU readmission, severe ICU-acquired weakness, tracheostomy, and weeks in the hospital and months in rehabilitation. He went to the ER for back pain. He was admitted to the hospital on May 15th. He finally made it home on August 11th. I am reminded of a bone marrow transplant patient I cared for as a nurse. He arrested three times within two hours for unknown reasons, but was successfully resuscitated. After the second time, he was intubated and woke up perfectly clear and understood what was going on. After the third arrest, he wrote to me that he wanted to be extubated. I told him our concerns about his abrupt arrests for unknown reasons, and he said that he was sore, tired, and understood that he could die and requested that if it occurred again, he did not want to be brought back. 
he was really just in pain from compressions and was hating the bed and wanted to go on a walk. So according to his will, we exhibited him and I walked him just 15 minutes after doing compressions on him. Admittedly, it was weird for the team to see the man we were just coding strolling through the halls, but it was his choice. His code status, advanced directives, pain management, and even mobility were in his hands because we did not automatically sedate him as a knee-jerk response to having an endotracheal tube. We wanted to know what his neurostatus was doing after a code, and we got that and more for him. So before you fall back to autopilot to routinely order or give that milk of amnesia, please pause and sincerely question the necessity of it. Have you assessed their neurostatus? Did you ask the patient or the family about their preferences? Were you transparent with them about the risks involved with deep sedation and immobility? Have you tried to treat the root cause of any anxiety or agitation, or is your team subconsciously wanting to mask it? Is their silence worth their suffering? Imagine where they will be tomorrow, in a few days, in a few weeks, in a few months. You, in that moment, have the power to greatly influence their destiny. Choose wisely. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.